Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Well, as has already been said, a very, very warm welcome to church. It's so great to see you here today. Why don't you turn and say hello to someone uh, that you didn't come with. As you do so, why don't you find a seat? Uh, a very warm welcome to you if you're joining us online. Uh, it's great to have you here with us too, even if just digitally. Thank you so much, Izzy. Appreciate it. It's good. How are we all doing? Good. Very good. Hey, if we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Jono, uh, and it's a pleasure to get to, to bring the word today. As, as Penny already mentioned, we are starting a new series today, uh, which we know is going to be a new series. Uh, we know it's going to be a new series. That is a true statement. I mean to say we know it's going to be a good series. Do you know how we know it's going to be a good series? Because it alliterates. And we all know the best series always alliterate, right? It's a spiritual truth that is debatable. But uh, it's, it's going to be, uh, we're praying a significant series. And, and we're calling it this. We're calling it Trust in Trouble. And I, I want to get straight into it today because we've got a, a few things to, to work through, some, some ground to cover. I pray that it blesses you. But we've, we've taken this title from, from a promise that Jesus makes. And in fact, on the, the last night of his life, Jesus makes a promise. And, and I would suggest that maybe it's not a popular one. Like it's not a promise that I've seen embroidered. It's, it's not one that I've seen framed and, and, and put on the, the fridge. Uh, I've yet to see someone with this promise tattooed on them. Although we're looking to rectify that, right? So after the service, we're going to have a tattoo artist out in the foyer and you can get a tattoo, but only if it's, that's not true, that's a lie, right? But it would be... I mean, yeah, probably don't get it tattooed, but all thing, no, not all things in reason. Just don't get it tattooed. I haven't seen it tattooed, and that's a good thing. That's the position I'm taking on it. Uh, and you're thinking, John, what is the scripture? Get to the Bible. The less of you, more of God, please. I agree. That would be a good thing. It is John 16, uh, verse 33. We'll put it up on the screen behind me, and it, it says this. Jesus speaking to the disciples on the last night of his life, he says to them, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. You know, I think we'd all say that our experience reality is that, is that Jesus wasn't wrong. Life is full contact, yeah? And, and, and so across the series, we really want to ask, Trouble comes and goes, right? Trouble is, is guaranteed. Jesus himself promises it, it, it to us. And so if troubles are guaranteed, how do we trust God in the trouble? Maybe even we really, if we're being honest, we want to start with the question, can we? Can we trust God in our troubles? And so I want to start today by looking at what I think is the, the biggest trouble of all. I want to look at the trouble of suffering. This is no small undertaking, I think, today to look at a topic like this, right? I know you're all like, this is a great Sunday to come to church. I'm very excited for this. So uh, let's pray, because if nothing else, I need Jesus to help me, um, and hopefully you need him to help you to listen to. Uh, so why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you are here. God, we thank you that, uh, that while the things that we're going to talk about today might not be fun or easy things to talk about, they are important, God, and that in them we find you. That, that it's not just on the mountaintops that you meet us, but it's also in the valleys. And often it's in the valleys that, that we encounter you in fresh and in new ways that are of, of such value and importance. 
God, I pray today that, that as I speak, it would not be my words or my ideas, but that it would be you speaking to us. God, I pray for those of us in the room today who, who for, this hits a nerve. God, there's no one here today who trouble hasn't touched in some way, shape, or form. And so I pray for, for those of us here today who, well, like, man, this is a little bit uncomfortable that your mercy, your grace, your peace would be with us in the midst of this. God, we don't want to shy away from the hard things of life because we know that in those places, the light shines brighter. Would you be with us today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm, I'm sitting in our lounge, and I'm confronted with the reality that all is not as it should be. We'd been sharing prayer requests as, as an e-group, and, and, and within the room, there are at least three chronic illnesses represented, either those in the room or, or those close to them. There are heart attacks and, and cancer diagnoses and broken bones and the need for organ transplants. And, and that day, our contribution is an email, an email that I got on the Monday after we'd returned from, from Shah, and it was bad news. When we left Wellington, we'd, we'd sold our home. And we arrived in Christchurch, we thought, oh, we'll, we'll get to know the market a little bit before we, before we buy. And, and before we kind of had the chance to do that, the market had almost doubled and we'd been priced out, right? It's not an, an uncommon story. And so we took our deposit and we decided we'll, we'll invest it in a smaller home and, and hope that it grows in value to, to ride the market and build a deposit for a home for our family. But to cut what feels like a very long story short, this email was letting us know that we were going to lose our, our home deposit. Not something you want to lose, Right? A combination of a downward market and increased interest rates and bad luck had left us with some life lessons, no money, and the question, why? Which wasn't a great day, right? But to be fair, that wasn't the worst day of, of my life so far. That prize, as if there's a prize for the worst day, goes to a Sunday in 2015. We were sitting in the afternoon sun, a Sunday afternoon after a great morning in church, and my phone rang, it was, it was my mum. I pick it up and she says, it's, it's Damien. He's in the hospital. He's died. Now, now, Damien is my nephew, 18 months old, and so we fly into autopilot. Or we, we get our things, we jump in the car, and we drive faster than we probably should have to the hospital. And, and we run down the corridors under fluorescent light to a room, and he's there. In the arms of my sister. Small little onesie, far too still, far too cold, and I take him, and I plead, God, please, would you do something, God, please, and yet days later, we stand around a hole in the ground, saying goodbye to a life that only just started, with, left with nothing much more than the question, Why? Now, I don't tell these stories to, to elicit sympathy or to try and win you over, but to establish the fact that like for all of you, the, the problem of pain, of sorrow, of suffering is not simply academic for me. These are not fun ideas to, to think about. These are not things that are, are just, oh, I wonder how that works. These are things that I have wrestled through, and I do not have strong established conclusions, but I have a place. See, I want to be as clear as I can at the outset that I'm sorry we didn't put tissues under every seat, right? There was an oversight on my behalf. But I want to be clear that, that this is not a sitcom sermon. 
Right? Some sermons are self-contained and, and, and we have an idea and maybe a problem and a resolution and it's all wrapped up nicely in 30 minutes. And I want to say there's nothing wrong with that. We usually do aim for that. We don't want to leave you with a bunch of things to walk out of here with. But today's not a sitcom sermon. Right? I want to say these are, these are real questions, real whistles, and there's, there's no tidy answers. Suffering is not a problem to be solved. And I also tell these stories because when you hear stories like mine, I imagine your own stories come to mind. The day that you lost the business, the day of the diagnosis, the day that you lost the job, the day you lost hope, the day they were lowered into the ground and you were left with nothing much more than the questions, why? See, for all of us, Suffering is a shadow that is always looming, and, and we, we can try and not look at it. We can try and ignore it until something happens, and suddenly it seems to be all that we can see, like a blanket smothering hope. And in my experience, suffering tends to be where we look hardest for God, and where often God seems the most difficult to find. One final story. In his book, Night, Eli Vassell tells of his experience in the Nazi concentration camps. It's not a fun story. And there's this one particularly haunting scene in which Vassell describes a day when the entire camp is drawn together, gathered together, and the gallows are set up. And this, unfortunately, was not an uncommon occurrence. Whenever a prisoner broke a rule, they would be publicly executed as a way of warning the other prisoners to stay in line. But today was slightly different. But because today there were three prisoners and one of them was just a child. And so as they are made to watch the unthinkable, a man behind Vassell repeats over and over to himself under his breath, but in Vassell's hearing, where is God? Where is he? Where is God now? And Vassell writes, I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is he? Here he is. He is here, hanging on these gallows. Now, what does that mean, right? Well, one interpretation of that is that in light of the problem of pain, in light of the suffering and hurt in the world, God is undoubtedly disproved for, for how could a loving and kind and powerful God allow such, such suffering? But I want to say today, is that the only implication? Today I want to ask the question, a question that we've all asked before, but maybe we're just being brave enough today to ask from the stage, where is God in suffering? If we're going to trust in trouble, we need to face the fact that like Jesus unfortunately promises us in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, which, which surely provokes the question, Why? Right, like why is there suffering? Why is it a certainty that in this world we will have trouble? Well, in, in Matthew 6, 13, Jesus teaches us to pray, and he ends the prayer with this statement, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Some, some translators paraphrase temptation as, as trouble because the origin of all trouble is the evil one. See, we, we see this in the start of the story, Genesis 1. We start with this, a good creation. Right, God created a, a good world. Genesis 1, God saw that it was good. Seven times he says it is good, finishing by saying that it is very good. Very good. No trouble. But we know that the story does not stay there. Right, then we have number two, the fall. Right, Adam and Eve choose to be their own gods, and as a result, they introduce sin, and now they are distant and distrustful of the God that they once knew as a loving father. 
They are insecure and fearful of each other, and creation itself is cursed. Genesis 3.17, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Sin tragically permeates all of creation. See, creation is made good, very good, but God tells one story and the serpent tells another, and they believe the serpent, and history is a result of believing that one lie. The best analogy that I can think of is a fire in the desert, right? Gathered around a fire, we are warm. At night, we can see, we can cook, and and we're protected from the wild beasts that might be roaming in the night, but we can choose to move away from the fire. And, And as we do, we get colder, and we lose the provision and the protection of the fire. We move into the night. See, I want to be very clear as we start this, this series of talks. God is not the originator of suffering. Sinners. All of our trouble, all of what we go through, the suffering in the world is the product of a curse that infected the world that God made good and only good. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, what we need to know is that suffering is neither an impersonal fate nor a cut and dried moral punishment. We are implicated in a world of sin, sometimes ours and sometimes others, and therefore in a world of suffering. So that, you know, maybe in too little time, but to answer the question, why is there suffering? The answer as simply as possible. There's a lot more to it, but is because we left Eden. Right? We left God's good world. We chose to be our own gods. And suffering in every variety is not the punishment of sin. It's not God being mad at us and throwing lightning bolts from some distant heaven. It is the natural consequence of sin. And our suffering, according to Genesis 6, grieves God. It breaks his heart. So, so if that's the why, Really what I want to talk about today, I want to start with the why so that none of us come into this place of being like, well, why is God solving a problem that God made? Suffering is not a problem of God. It's a consequence of sin that God is about solving. And so so the question that I want to ask today is, what does God do about suffering? If in this life we will have troubles, if everyone here today can can attest in some way, shape, or form that we have been touched by troubles in our own lives. What does God do about that? Let's go back one last time to John 16, 33. I'll read it to you again. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Right, this, this word here, overcome, in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense, which is we kind of have future tense, past tense, and, and present. We don't have a perfect tense in, in English, but basically it means something that is happening right now and continuing to happen into the future. Right, the, the point of this is important is because it means it's a current and an ongoing action. Jesus is saying the world is under the curse of sin, that there is trouble, that there is suffering, but also that he has defeated the source of suffering that he has overcome the world. Now, overcome the world doesn't mean that he's defeated your annoying neighbor, right? The one who always, you know, steals your bins or mows their lawn and then puts the clippings on your lawn or, or anything like that, right? That's not what we're saying here. It's not overcome someone who annoys you. Overcome the world is not, oh yeah, it's the evil people who are secular. Overcome the world is the brokenness of sin. And because of this overcoming, Jesus says we can take heart. Right? Why can we take heart? I believe it's because of three things that Jesus does. And today, quite simply, I'd just like to tell you about these three things. I, help, I hope that at least one of them helps you in whatever you have been going through, are going through, or might go through. Right? I know that all three have helped me. If you're taking notes today, 
uh, we can take heart in suffering. Why don't you take a big breath, right? I know we started intense. We can take heart, number one, if you're taking notes, because Jesus resolves suffering. Now, what does that mean, right? Revelation uh, chapter 21 verse 4 says this, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things is past. Right, Jesus' life, death, and ministry promise us that there will one day be no more tears, that there will one day be a, a restored heaven and earth, that there will one day we will be free from the presence and the power of sin, and that Jesus came and suffered. God, in human form, executed in the most shameful way that the Roman Empire could devise, but more than that, more than just dying, he took on the sin of the world, our suffering, dying to redeem every wrong, to crush the serpent's head, to borrow language from Genesis 3. Right? Jesus came to overcome sin and suffering, but he didn't just take on the, the consequences. He defeated the very cause of sin and suffering. He didn't just, just wipe the table. He removed the very thing that was causing the table to become dirty. He died and rose again, defeating sin, death, and the grave. Right now, you might be here today, and, and we sung a new song, Trust in God, right? And, and the chorus says, I trust in God who will never fail. And, and you might have been here like, if suffering is close to you, how do I sing a lyric like that? How do I sing that God will never fail when, if I'm being honest, I feel like he has? I feel like there are things that I wanted to see happen or things that I didn't want to see happen, and, and I'm living in this world touched by suffering. I feel like he, how can I sing that he hasn't, he hasn't failed? To, to paraphrase Frederick Buchner, he, he says, the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Right? Declaring that Jesus hasn't failed does not mean that we are saying, I am not in the middle of pain and suffering. It does not mean that we're saying these things do not hurt me, they, they do not harm me, that it is not hard, but it is saying the worst thing is never the last thing. There is a resolution coming that will remove sin and suffering from the world, right? That doesn't mean that what we go through does not count, and sometimes, if we're honest, it doesn't even really make it that much better, but it does mean that he does not fail, that things are going to be made right in a way that we cannot quite understand, but we can hold on to, even declaring it as a promise. God, I do not understand how you're going to make this right, but I hold on to the promise in your word. You will not fail. And so I declare it as a statement of faith, even when I don't feel it. God, please do not fail. God, resolve suffering. Jesus resolves. He ends suffering. And that's a good promise, right? But, but I found that in suffering, if I'm honest, I need more than a one-day promise. Like I hold on to that, and that is a hope. God, I thank you that one day things will be made right, but today is not one day. Today things suck. So do I bury my head in the sand and hope for a, you know, happily ever after? What do I do in the here and now? See, see what, I, what I think is important is I want a promise to hold on to, but I also need a help. I actually even need a help to, for me to hold on to the promise. You know, Psalm 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. See, the second thing I want us to understand is not only does Jesus resolve suffering one day, not only has it defeated sin and suffering and death, that one day there will be a time of no more tears. But number two, if you're taking notes, Jesus also relates to us in our suffering. See, it's not just that Jesus defeats sin, it's how he defeats sin. 
See, to, to the modern world, a God who is a Lord isn't really that attractive, right? We want like a guru or a sage, someone with a 10 to 30, maybe two hour long podcast that we can listen to, take some nice ideas from, write down, think, yeah, I'm going to do that, not really do it, but feel better about ourselves for having listened, right? That's what we're looking for. That is, there is a complete industry made up out of it. Well, like, yeah, give me a sage, give me a guru whose advice I can take way up as to whether I want to do it or not and embrace it, right? We don't want a Lord. But that wasn't the way that it was in the ancient world. In fact, it was the other way around. To the, to the ancient world, a God who would suffer was unthinkable. In fact, the fact that Jesus had died was originally seen as proof that he could not be divine. Because what God would let themselves die? What God would let themselves suffer? What God would willingly, if they suffered, then they must have not been able to do anything about it. Because what God would willingly embrace that, what God would willingly go through that, surely a God would not. Because our picture of God is just a bigger us. And we would never willingly go through suffering. So why would a God do it? Hebrews uh, 4, 4 verse 15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, Jesus didn't come just to do away with suffering. Jesus actually came to join us in our suffering. Jesus began his ministry with 40 days in the desert where he was tempted by the devil, a mirror of the fall that we read in page one, right? The tempter comes to suggest another way, a different way to tell another story. And the surprising thing about the temptations, if you read them, is that they don't actually seem that bad. Right? Like, are you hungry? Make bread. Call on angels to help. Hey, I'll tell you what, you seem to love this world so much. You seem to care for creation so much. Let's make a deal and I'll just give it to you. They don't seem like, you know, lie to your friends, murder someone, do horrible things, right? They seem kind of, feels weird to say, Satan's being fairly reasonable. Don't take that context, uh, out of context, right? I left too long a pause where someone could trip that down on the internet and uh, cancel me. Right, what is Satan suggesting here? With these seemingly reasonable suggestions, what he's suggesting is a shortcut method to redemption. In the shortcut, what is being skipped? What is being gone around? Jesus is suffering. Satan is saying, hey, we can do all of this. I think we can work out a deal where you get what you want, I get what I want, and you don't have to suffer. But Jesus resists. Jesus rejects that. He chooses to suffer not just as an act of restoration, but as an act of compassion. Compassion from the Latin compati, meaning in the Latin to suffer with. Right? Jesus came to suffer with us. He wanted to enter into our suffering for no other reason than to join us in it. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann suggests that a God who cannot suffer cannot love. In fact, Moltmann suggests that if God chose to suffer on the cross, then in doing so, God entered into our suffering. And that as a result of entering into our suffering, there is no suffering that is not also God's suffering. That in everything we go through, the good and the bad, God is present there in it with us. Which means that when we are confronted with unspeakable suffering, that causes us to ask, where is God? Causes that voice to come out of us, just like it came out of the man behind Eli Vassell. Where is God? Where is he now? Where is God in this? We can agree with, with the voice that rose up within Eli. He is there hanging on the gallows. 
but maybe not in the way we originally assumed of here is God dead on the gallows, but God joins us in the suffering of the gallows. That there is no suffering that we go through that God does not embrace in and of himself. He is not disproved in suffering, but fully present, joining us in it and taking on our sufferings. That he is a very present help in times of trouble. See, God came to resolve suffering, to make a time when there will be no more suffering. There is a promise. But he also came to join us in our suffering, in that in-between, in the almost but not yet, while the world is still broken, to be present with us, to be with us as we say, sure, one day it will be made right, but right now, God, it's wrong. Right now, God, it hurts. Right now, God, I am, I don't know what God is present. He's present with our anger. He's present with our worry. He's present with our doubt. He's present with our fear. He is present. See, Jesus resolves suffering. And Jesus chooses to relate to us in our suffering, but he goes above and beyond even that. Romans 5 verses 1 to 5, Paul says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Good so far, right? Like, yeah, it's encouraging. Paul, amazing. But he continues. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, if we're honest, depending on your personal story of suffering, that is insensitive at best, and offensive at worst, right? I, I don't know about you, but I'm like, Paul, I'd say that suffering is lots of things, but I'm not sure that I would say that suffering is something to glory in, that suffering is something to throw a party about, that suffering is something, oh, suffering, bring it on, this is great, yeah, fantastic. We meet Christians like that, and they are pretending. <laughs> yeah, it's great, you know, just nothing happened, bring it on. They go home and cry just like we do. Right, because suffering is not something that we want to glory in. It's not something that feels good. So we look at Paul saying this. We're like, we're mad. How could suffering produce hope? Like, Paul, I know that you were beaten a bunch. Maybe you took too many blows to the head. You seem disconnected from reality. See, but here is what Paul is saying. Jesus took the worst thing, the worst thing that the enemy could throw at us, suffering, that, that pain that wrenches our hearts apart, that makes us question the goodness and the presence of God. And he says, first of all, one day, there will be no more suffering. One day, there will be a time of no more tears. He resolves suffering. There is a hope to come. He says, but right now, in the middle of it, while it is still hard, I am here with you. And then he says, and we're going to make the enemy rue the day that he ever sent that at you. See, I want to ask the question today, and, and, and maybe it's a, a harder question to ask than the first two, but I want to ask the question, what if suffering can be redeemed? Now, I want to be clear, not like those misinformed readings of Job. Right, we've all heard someone do it. Maybe we've done it ourselves. We look at it and we're like, oh, look, but it ends happy. He got a better family, which is great. Except you do the first family. You're dead. Story doesn't end well for you, right? Like, oh, Job, I'm so glad that you got a better wife than me and better kids than us. I guess we'll just feel all right as the draft. And if we're honest, if Job is actually a reasonable and loving person, it's not a great ending for him in totality either. As much as he might come to love his new family, as much as things are restored back to him, if he truly loved them in the first place, there will always be an ache in his heart. 
there will always be a memory of, of them and those. See, this is not some sort of good trade where, God, I bring you my suffering, the things that I've lost, and I get an upgrade. Like I got on the plane in the economy, my economy seat has had to die, but I've got business class. It's not the way it works. Maybe we can come to some sort of a, an interpretation of that from a distance, but once we step into suffering ourselves, that explanation falls apart in a moment. It doesn't work like that. Suffering can be something that you wouldn't wish on anyone. And we need to be reminded that suffering is at its root sinful. It is a consequence of the fallen world. But what if even though suffering is horrible, even though it is evil, even though it is a consequence of sin, what if God is too good to let it go to waste? What if Jesus doesn't just resolve suffering and relate in our suffering? What if Jesus redeems our suffering? You know, I don't know about you, I, I hear scriptures like Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And I think, that would be nice. But actually, God, the weapons formed against me, they seem to be doing pretty well. No weapon, like, in fact, they seem to be thriving. Like, they are living, I, no, I, I'm not hashtag blessed life, but the weapons, they're out there hashtag blessed life. Like, they seem to be loving life, they're thriving, they're like living my best life, just making life really hard for people, this is awesome. Right, so I read that, and I'm like, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. I guess that applies to other people, right? If that is my interpretation, that life will always be easy and simple, and nothing will ever come against me. But, but what if that's not what it means? What if no weapon formed against you shall prosper does not mean that there will never be pain, that there will never be suffering, that things will never be hard? What if, much more importantly, it means that the suffering that we go through will not prosper in the enemy's intent for it? See, what if the intent of a weapon is not just to hurt, but to destroy See, it's my prayer for us in this series that we would come to a place of resolve, of conviction to say, this suffering cannot, will not, and shall not destroy me. The things that have come against me have cost me too much, have hurt too deeply to simply just be an unfortunate thing that has happened because the world is broken. God, you need to bring redemption in this. And that doesn't look like a nice tied up bow fairy tale. I got a better family at the end of it. It looks like, God, you are doing something in the sea. In my suffering, a question that I have found helpful to ask is this too will shape me. The only question is how? God, this suffering is going to form something in me that is outside of my control. My question is, how will it shape me? This will change me. I will be a different person on the other side of this. Who will I be? See, I think suffering can form in us two good things, plenty of bad, but at least two good things. The first is, is perspective. I found suffering, like, like nothing else, helps us to see clearly what matters, what is counterfeit and, and what is valuable. I found never in my life has suffering made me think, man, I really want to spend less time with my family. This is hard, and so I just don't want to spend as much time with the people that I love. Right? It's, it's never made me think, man, I really wonder what strangers on the internet think about me. Man, I'm going through it. I wonder what people are, are writing about me. I wonder how many likes this has got. It's never made me think, Do you know what? I really want that new toy, that thing that seems shiny and nice. That's going to solve all of my problems. See, I think that suffering can clarify what matters. It brings perspective. Things come into clarity in suffering. And regardless of how suffering comes, that is a gift. We can say, hey, in the suffering, at the very least, I'm getting perspective of the things that truly matter. The second thing that suffering can form in us, a good thing it can give us, is it can give us empathy. 
You know, Howard Thurman in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which is the book that Martin Luther King Jr. carried around in his pocket in the civil rights movement, talks about how suffering turns us inward at first. That in the early stages of suffering, the sufferer can only see their own situation, their own experience, but that with time, some are able to come to see through their suffering, to see others through the lens of their suffering, and that their pain can be repurposed as compassion. See, I know that I have to, if I have to go through something horrible, I know that I'm looking at God saying, do not waste this. Or help me not to waste this. God, do not let this be wasted. God, redeem this in some way. God, this is going to shape me. Help me to be more like you on the other side. God, I want to be more empathetic. God, I want to have a better perspective. God, this weapon cannot prosper. Viktor Frankl says this. He said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. So you might say, well, that's a, that's a nice idea, Mr. Frankel. But like, try that in real life, right? Like, that's a, a pretty statement, a nice sentiment. But, but how does that work in real life? How does that work when the rubber hits the road? How does that work in real suffering? Well, Frankel was an Austrian Jewish psychiatrist in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. In it, he, he documents his life and time in a concentration camp. This is the last concentration camp story, I promise, right? Two in one sermon is pushing the limit, I will acknowledge if I'd have the band join me. Frankel observes in his book that, that the harshness of suffering can produce in the sufferer either a cold cynicism or a warm compassion. That for some, suffering can, can lead them to seek escape. And maybe it's in prison liquor or a cigarette, anything to sort of numb the pain a little bit. He would say that they sought no meaning in their suffering. They despised hope. But he saw that there were others who in the same circumstances seemed to rise to the occasion, fighting to survive, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread, that he would say that they found meaning, that they sought hope. And when asked what it was that made the difference, what was it that while others fell into a hard, callous cynicism, despising hope, some clung to hope, fighting for themselves and others, according to Frankel, and he bought a, it built an entire kind of idea, worldview, and therapy model around this, it was meaning. It was hope. The ability to see a glimpse on the horizon and find a way to survive in the now. To say, this is a thing that I'm going through, but it will not be everything. We could put it this way. I believe that we need both a promised resolution and a present help. Because promise plus presence equals hope. Hebrews uh, chapter 6 verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You know, this is, is built around the metaphor, the picture of, of a ship in a storm. Dropping, dropping anchor in, in a port and the storm comes and, and rages and pulls and pushes. But if the anchor is weighty, if it is firm, if it is reliable, the storm can be weathered. It doesn't change the storm. It doesn't change the things that, that come against the ship. But because what the ship is anchored in, because of something beyond the ship itself, the way that it experiences it and how it comes out the other side can be impacted. Promise plus presence can equal hope. I want to say we have a future hope. We, we have a promise that suffering will be resolved, that one day 
things will be made right, that one day there will be no more tears. And we have a present help. We have Jesus with us relating to us in suffering, His presence. See, I want to acknowledge that we don't get to choose to let suffering into our lives. Just barges right on it. But once it has so rudely intruded, we can choose to take it to God. Suffering can be the place that we would never want to go, but also the place that we would never be the same without. And that doesn't make it easy, and that doesn't lessen the sting. And so we wrestle. We wrestle with God. We take Him our pain and our disappointment. I'm done. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. In fact, as the hosts start to make sure that, that everyone who wants communion has it. But as they do that, there's one last person I want us to, to look at, one person I want to point us to, and it's the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk lived uh, 600 years before Christ, and he was a very different type of prophet, right? Most prophets, they talk to the people on behalf of God. That's their job. Listen to God, relay the message. But Habakkuk, he actually does the opposite. Habakkuk talks to God on behalf of the people because the nation is in trouble. There, There is oppression and poverty and corruption. There is suffering. So Habakkuk, it's only three chapters long. And at least the first two chapters of the book are simply Habakkuk saying to God, God, where are you and what are you doing? God, the nation is not in a good place. There is suffering, there is pain, there is evil. God, what are you doing? And what I love about Habakkuk, just like the Psalms and Lamentations and Jeremiah and really a whole bunch of the Bible, is it gives us permission to take our hurts and our complaints to God, to wrestle with them. To say, God, I can pray prayers that are not just everything is good, thank you, but God, this is broken and I do not know what to do with it. Help. And in fact, Habakkuk's name is prophetic in and of itself. It means to embrace and to wrestle. The story of Habakkuk summed up in a sentence is that Habakkuk lives in the tension of God, I know that you are good, and I'm also very aware that this sucks. What gives? Like, what do I do with this? What do I do in the midst of suffering? What do I do in the midst of this hardship? See, here's what I want you to know, especially if you are suffering today. If you remember nothing else, maybe remember this. God would rather have you yell at Him than walk away from Him. I want to say that one more time. God would rather have you yell at Him than walk away from Him. Maybe you need permission to take your your fear, your sorrow, your anger to God to say, God, this is what I'm feeling. This is where I'm at. I'm not hiding this from you because you know it anyway. I'm telling you not because you need to be informed, but because I need to tell you. Pray your pain. Wrestle with God. And so today, here's how we're going to finish. By bringing our suffering to God. I want to be clear. That doesn't mean we're solving suffering. I pray that God meets you and that something in you is transformed, that something changes, that something is lighter, but but at least bring it to Him. And we're going to do that by, by taking communion. Communion, which is a reminder of His suffering, that there is no suffering that we're alone in, and that there is no suffering that one day will not be made right. And so in our suffering, we can ask Jesus to bring beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, that we can hold on to the fact that we have a promise, that we have his presence. And because of that, we can have hope. God, I know you resolve suffering. 
I know you relate to me in my suffering. And so God, would you redeem the suffering that I am in now? That does not make it easier. It does not take away the hurt, but God brings something out of this. Do not let this be wasted. God, this too will shape me. Help me to help me to rely on you in such a way that it will make me more into who you want me to be. To build perspective, to build empathy, that I would draw closer to you in this. As, as you bow your heads, as you hold that communion in front of you, let's pray. God, today as we hold the the bread, God, we remind ourselves that you are not a distant God. God, that you are are near. God, that you are near in our joy and that you are near in our sorrow, that that you join us in, in whatever we walk through, that you relate to us, God, that because of the cross, there is no suffering that is not also your suffering. God, that you feel what we feel. We do not have a high priest who cannot relate to us, God, but that you see us, that you join us. Would we feel your presence in a new way, God? Would you strengthen us, God? Help. And God, as we hold the cup, God, we remind ourselves that that you are making all things new. God, we remind ourselves that suffering is not the final destination, that you are redeeming not just our sorrows, but, but all of creation. And so, God, in the middle of waiting for the glorious thing that will be, would you give us hope? God, would you help us to see what you see? God, that the weapons formed against us shall not prosper, that that will not destroy us, but that we would take what the enemy formed for evil and that you would turn it for good that it would form in us something of value, of beauty, not in our strength, not in our grit, but in our reliance on you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just you stand to your feet. We're going to go back into that new song that we started today, Trust in God. And as we sing it, maybe today for you it's it's a declaration of hope. God, I can trust in you. God, things are tough, but I choose to trust in you. God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I trust in you. Maybe today for you, it's a reminder. You know, it's been said that that all of us are either coming out of a storm, in a storm, or going into a storm. And that can feel a bit like a, a bit of a pessimistic statement. But the reality is, is that we know, God, you're going to be with me in whatever I go through. And so maybe right now, I just need to bolster myself. God, things are good. And so in the good, I'm going to build some things in me that will sustain me when things go wrong. I'm going to remind myself that I can trust you. I'm not just going to coast when things are good. I'm going to build some reserves now. And maybe this is a song that you struggle to sing. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, the lyrics stick in your throat. Because as I alluded to earlier, if you're honest, it feels like God has failed. Next week, we're going to talk about what it, what it is to feel disappointed by God. So I want to say, please come back to that. This is not a sitcom sermon. We're not wrapping it all up. We need you here week after week to build on this. I don't want to leave you in the, in the lurch on it. We cannot resolve it all today. But until then, maybe this can be a promise that you hold God to. Like, God, if you don't fail, would you meet me here in what feels like failure? God, I need a promise and I need your presence. I I need hope. And I want to say we just finished a sermon series on the reality that we do not follow Jesus alone. We follow Jesus together. And, And we can't promise a fix. But what we can promise you is our presence. 
that if we are the body of Christ, if we are his hands and his feet, that as you suffer, you do not have to suffer alone. That we can come together and we can stand with you in your suffering. I want to say the only person who can choose whether you go through it on your own or not is you, but we want to join you in it. And so as we sing, if today you're here and you're like, I don't know if I can trust God. Like I want to, that's a nice idea, but I struggle. God, I'm in the trouble. I am wrestling this through. It would be our honor if you would come to the altar and we could simply stand with you to pray for God's presence in the middle of the trouble, to pray that one day this will be made right and in the middle God is with us and God, would you redeem? We don't know what you are doing, but we trust that you are working it together. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold on to the hope that we affirm. Hoping is not something we do alone. It's something we do together. And so if we are going to trust in trouble, you cannot do it on your own. It takes getting to the altar together and saying, God, I don't know what to do with this, but being bolstered by your brothers and sisters in faith as we declare, God, we trust you. You will not fail. Because of the cross, the worst thing is never the last thing. One last time as you bow your heads, as you close your eyes, let's pray as we go into the song of worship. God, once more, I pray your covering. God, we speak to ideas, we speak to concepts, but you speak to hearts. Today, we need more than just helpful concepts, more than some ideas written on a page. We need an encounter with the living God. We need the God of resurrection. We need the God of redemption. We need the God who who we can trust even when it's hard, that it doesn't make it easier, but that we can come to you and say, God, this is what it is. What are we going to do about it? God, I pray for us here today, especially for those of us who are in the middle of trouble. God, we pray that you would bring a resolution. God, we know one day you would make it right, but we would love to not wait till then. God, would you be at work? God, would you meet us in the trouble? God, we know that this too will shape us. God, would you help us to see where there are moments to bring redemption, where there are moments to say, if I'm gonna go through this, I'm gonna make the devil pay that he would ever bring this against me and mine. God, more than anything else, we need you. So as we worship you, would you be present? Would you touch hearts and minds in a new, in a fresh way? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.